Hello there and welcome back to Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs. In the last episode spelled the end of 1937 and to Lee's drought of letters to Roland. With the new year starting, Lee had gone off on an adventure to the desert which ended up in a hospital in Suez Canal. Following this, she announced to Roland that she was off on another desert trip. So this is on her usual kind of creamy colour paper and it's tight and it's really quite long. Um, the date on it is the 7th of January 1938. Darling, it's shortly after dawn. I've got my old jitters and sleeplessness, only instead of early in the night, it's after a few hours of sleep that I wake up and fiddle around for something to do. So you're just a victim. I came back from Luxor by plane on Tuesday. It's one of those depressing Egyptian grey days when the world seems to have ended. And one senses the preoccupation of this country with death. After all, it is just tombs, ruins and embalmed bodies. And endless sameness. Generations of people, dead people, doing exactly the same in the same way. It glooms me terribly. Today is going to be like all the others... And the only thing it seems alive is the hope that I can get out of it all. Night before last, I was nightclubbing with some English named Clifford Turner and my new Viennese adventure and his wife. And last night, binging with my own crowd from here, most particularly with Kate Davis Pulitzer, who's leaving for Europe sometime. More of her later in this same letter, as I want you to get in contact with her next month, either in London or Paris, wherever you both are going to happen to be. My stay in Luxor, or rather Armand, wasn't quite as much fun as last time, though I did a great many more exciting things and had a few dazzling moments. It was rather spoiled by the presence of a terribly sniff-faced couple named Crawford, late middle-aged Scotch, stingy. Pillars of the church, full of good works and interference in others' plans which aren't so noble. And the daughter of the house was home from an English school with two girlfriends, all three full of puppy fat and bad manners, spoiled and noisy as hell, stupid, badly educated, lazy and covered with pimples. Besides, none of them at 15 and 16 know the facts of life yet, and conversation at table was apt to get rather involved and brought to a sudden halt. Due to my effort to cooperate with my hostess in even the matter of their continued ignorance, it certainly wouldn't hurt or endanger any of those girls, as no one will ever make a pass at them anyway. It's surprising how much ordinary conversation, even with such Puritan-minded people as the Crawford, turns on questions of marriage and birth. One of the girls actually asked me if you could get an illegitimate child through a fur coat. So I told her, no, but possibly through a dress. Whereupon she told her mother, now let Mummer explain that away. My name is Mud. On account of the daughter being back, the English horse I rode last time was occupied and I had to ride Arabs, all of whom turned out to be rate racehorses and shouldn't be ridden by anyone in their right mind, especially me on account that I'm neither jockey nor a rodeo girl. There was one nasty beast called Renown who hated the sight of me. He was grey with white edges to his eyes which glared at me. 
but certainly should have been full of warning of what I was letting myself in for. Arabs are horrid anyway, sort of nervous and stumbly on their feet. Waltz steps here and there a missing beat and getting their ankles crossed. It doesn't inspire confidence. I was acutely miserable for two hours on the creature who insisted on bolting for every dog yap or screaming child. Since it's pretty densely populated and the path through the cultivation full of dust brats and people shitting, lined with muddy irrigation ditches, villages, bushes covered with thorns and manure drainage pools, there was never a place for a happy landing in case of dislodgement, which seemed imminent at every step. He did some fancy standing on his rear legs, threw his head back at an unexpected moment, giving me a terrible crack in the mouth. I now go to the dentist every day for it, and tried assorted side steps to show that I was unpopular, which I'd already understood and was simply being stubborn. I was pretty heroic and actually didn't manage to scream as the only time I had enough breath and was about to, he was shoving his hairy mane in my mouth and stifled it. The next day I took the same monster, feeling like a wild western novel heroine, so damned angry at him that I swore I'd get him beaten at his own game. But this time he became a bucking bronco, bit my ankle, got in a very muddy ditch and rolled over onto his side. As the ditch was narrow, he couldn't get on his back and I couldn't get off as my leg was underneath. The mud was nice and soft I had to stay on and get up with him, so mad with rage I could have gouged his eyes out. And he screamed the most terrible sounds imaginable and started to throff at the mouth and sweat all over and jump up and down on all four feet. Finally, a groom came up and grabbed him long enough for me to get off and run for dear life. I was convinced that he'd chase me to kill me. And then they took him off and shot him, as evidently I'd driven him crazy. So you see, I'm gentle and understanding with man and beast, children and small animals. What was Professor Brighton's name? If I don't have a hangover tomorrow, I'm going to start going to the riding school next door, on account of what I have an intention on horses. That is if it suits you. I'd like to go to Portugal and sort of ride from one village to another and look over the whole country, and have a suitcase waiting in a big city or so, and fiddle around generally. So if you are very nice, you'd look into the subject, whether it would be fun, possible, etc., I've a particular yen to go to Portugal, as I never knew Spain, and I'm afraid that as a reaction to the Spanish goings-on, the Portuguese are going to start either tearing up their country or are going to get heavily organised and impossibly fascist. So before that happens, I'd like to go see. The idea being also that you find out all about it and then invite me with some other real or imaginary couple to make this trip. I should suggest the end of Feb or March... Another idea is, would you like to go to Russia? One would have to go sort of in-tourist. And maybe I couldn't get a visa anyway. Or maybe the Russians wouldn't like either of us to use it as a whoring ground. I've established myself as having sort of itchy feet and as wanting to dash off to see queer places with queer people for unknown and queer reasons. So Aziz wouldn't be astonished if I suddenly decide to join odd people going to Sarawak or Fiji. 
But what about sailing around the Dalmatian coast, etc.? You say in this letter I just got, we'd return the formula for the powder. Have you sent it? Was it supposed to be in the letter or in some other letter? If it was the latter, I must be missing on some post from you, because up till now I've not received it. Also, I've no word about the Picasso portrait. Is it at sea? On what ship? Do you think that maybe the Germans or Spaniards have sunk or captured it? Or what? I'm in a panic. And I'm long to see it again. I'm going to have a reception for it or a vernissage or something. A hanging party. Or what shall I call it? This letter's getting unwieldy and very long and is being punctuated by my dashing to the toilet every so many minutes due to too much not-so-good champagne last night. I'm a real duck. My really exciting time in Armand, besides the horse troubles, was becoming the sister of all the serpents. We went four of us, Kate Davis, her flirt, Guy Taylor, and Aziz and myself to look at a couple of tombs and new things in the Valley of the Kings and lunch in a basket. On leaving, we saw the snake charmer, the son of a famous Musa who'd got bitten and died last summer. We adopted him and took him along every place we went and he hauled out snakes in quantities and weird qualities and drank a lot of beer. And the gent took a fancy to me. My name is Hussein Omar and I am a lecturer in modern global history at University College Dublin. Yeah, so I mean, there's a, there's a Sufi brotherhood called the Rifa'iya, and it's one of the most popular and widespread Sufi brotherhoods in Egypt at the time. Very large, very significant numerically. And they have a reputation for being sort of snake charmers. So if you have a snake in your house, you call somebody from the Rifa'i brotherhood and they can, they can coax it out of your home without killing it. Within the Rifa'i brotherhood, there's some kind of connection between holiness and snake charming. I, I imagine that this famous Musa and the son and her status as a sister of the serpents would have been linked to the Rifa'i. We made a ceremony which was pretty fantastic. And I had to repeat chapters of the Quran, swear never to injure a snake, was twined in cobras and vipers, spat and was spat on in return, and then started snake charming on my own, first with cobras who were devenomized and then with new ones. I've a perfect passion for snakes anyway, though I've also been at the same time terrified of being bitten, as you'll remember every time I had to get out to pee in the midi. They're wonderful to touch and clean like jewels, sparkling and tender to touch. The vipers have wonderful eyes but wiggle a lot and won't get obedient. But the cobras are gentle and come when you call them and put their head right on your hand. Guy took a lot of pictures which I've ordered for you too. I having started the way, Kate Davis went snake taming too but she didn't really enjoy it much and we had to keep urging her all the time, and I don't think she'll ever do it again. But I'm going to get the local zoo man to start doing it seriously, except the disease is against it, so maybe I won't after all, because they say if you touch them a lot, you get this female smell on you and then start attracting them, and the house will get full of snakes, which won't suit the other members of the household at all. And he says I'm sloppy and forgetful and would be likely to have a pet snake around and forget to milk it one day and then he'd bite the other people. So I guess he's right. There was a Viennese couple, tourists in Luxor, who came to lunch at the house in Armont. 
They were going to Edfu the following morning with a lunch basket and dragoman. So I said, me too. So Edfu is not far from Aswan. Uh, and there's a really beautiful Ptolemaic temple of Horus over in Edfu. And it would have been one of the very standard stops on the Nile itinerary. The Pasha telephoned to Cairo and asked the express to stop at Armont. So I went across the Nile in a felucca in the sunrise and rode a donkey to the station, then found that the train was two hours late. So I sat in the cold dawn on bales of cotton and played cigar with the station master, drank Arab tea and got eaten by the wandering fleas of all the passing goats and camels. The train pulled in, all the tourists hanging out, wondering why it should stop in the middle of space. The conductor and engineer think at least I must be the visiting queen or whatnot, to have the train stopped especially for me and found that Madame Viennese hadn't come either due to the sore throat that she'd claimed, or she understood the glint in her husband's eye and didn't care. Anyway, I fed myself on eggs, ham and two glasses of brandy, fell into his arms and played love games all the way to Edfu, which is such a perfect place, and intact that if you had a cobra and a bronze bull, you could move in tomorrow and set up housekeeping and high priest. It was exciting and satisfying an adventure, and very unreal, like any new and unshared secret. So maybe you're right. I'm just another girl looking for trouble. Do you remember how angry I was? But if I am, I got caught in my adventure with you, and I love you and want you, and spend a great deal of time doing extremely silly things just because I can't get enough guts to do what I really want to do. Your Lee. Hampstead, 11th of January, 38. My darling, your letters read like the most incredible newsreel thriller with all the colour and incidents required. Snakes, mad horses, lovers in temples and champagne. What more can you hope for? It made me feel, as I read your adventures this morning, very small, grey and unglamorous in comparison. I'm itching to meet your friend Kate Davis Pulitzer and have news of you all hot and fresh. But I wish, my love, that you were more contented and really happy, though I could not be able to suppress some lurking jealousy were you happy. Really happy away from me. And at any rate, I get the benefit of your sleepless nights with the letters of inflict on me. As regards letters and all that, it is clear that at least one must have been lost, which is not good. When you wrote a long time ago now, saying you had the itch or something, and asked for the powder, I sent you the formula. But it matters less losing that than the letter. The Picasso should arrive any time now, but have patience. The passage all the way round by sea is always long. I can't, unfortunately, remember the name of the ship it's on, but it should get to you all right. In a way, I sent it off too soon, since I received a special request from Paris to send it to the Big Surrealist Show, which opens this week. It's a show on an unprecedented scale, both for quality and scandal and I'm sorry your radiant face shouldn't be in the centre of it either in paint, or even more sorry that you should not illuminate the whole affair with your presence. 
I'm going over on Friday for the opening. I expect to stay a weekend in Paris and then go on for a few days for my long-promised visit to the sick friend of mine in Montana, stopping in Paris on the way back. I've lived a very quiet life since I wrote to you last. Hardly anything to tell. I've been painting every day and recuperating from Christmas from the point of view of health and finance. The latter is a bit rocky lately. Apparently the only wise thing that I did in that time was to buy pictures, but that doesn't help one's income. My little half-Spanish girl is still here, well again now and probably getting a job at Illy's Ardens. She's much happier and keeps telling me she's glad I'm in love with somebody else, so we get on all right in a loose, temporary way. Little Ratten was over here last week, and we lunched and dined sumptuously together. He asked after you, and apologised for having behaved badly, particularly to Katya that night last summer. I don't know why. Darling, we will certainly arrange a spring tour. I myself have a leaning towards Dalmatia, since my little friend Varna spoke so eloquently of her country. She would entertain us and put us on the right track for visiting places, otherwise unknown, and she's the sort of girl to be a real help. She's half engaged to an Englishman who lives out there and sells planes to the government, and her brother is chief of police. Most useful. Also, she particularly said to me, come with a friend. But that is at least six weeks ahead, and I want you now, darling Lee. Your beauty so outshines any that I have ever known, and you, apart from your beauty, are what my heart most desires. Though I feel very incompetent to make you have even the vaguest feelings for me, you probably are just a bone-charmer of semi-venomous snakes, and an old blind like me is easy work. The photo is one that Thea took of me beheading the girl for the dew machine. Do send me photos of yourself. I particularly want to see you clothed in serpents. I keep on being interrupted by the telephone, so we'll have to give up until later. If you can write to me at Hotel Paris Dinard, 29 Rue Cassette Paris 6, I shall be calling there on my way back from Montana about the 23rd of Jan. Lee, my love, let me know when you can get away. I want you terribly, and this separation seems interminable. Write to me soon. All my love, Roland. Paris, 18th of Jan. My love. Why the devil weren't you here? It's every moment I'm reminded of you and think how much you would enjoy the excitement of the opening of the surrealist show and masses of our friends that collect for a thing of this sort. To give you an adequate description of the show itself would take volumes, and at the opening last night the crowd surging round the doors with a whole squad of police trying to keep them from smoking to death those who weren't lucky enough to get in all left me dazed and bewildered and desperately tired when I finally got to bed at 4am. I sent off from the gallery a catalogue dictionary compiled by Paul, which would never have been complete without a portrait of you among the femmes surrealists. It is a marvellous document, but it won't give you much idea of the exhibition, which is the thing the least like a picture show I have ever seen. To begin with, there is only one source of light in the room, 
which comes from a brasero in the centre. The ceiling is hung with sacks of coal, so that no daylight gets in, and the floor is covered with dead leaves, cork powder and moss. There are large double beds prepared, and a pond with reeds, and the moon reflected in it comes out from under one of them, but one of the most fetching things is the entrance. At the door is Dali's taxi pluveur, covered with ivy, headlights full on and lit up inside. The driver is a vicious little dummy wearing goggles and a shark's jaw for a hat. A ravishing dishevelled blonde sits half naked on the back seat, with 250 escargot de Bourgogne crawling over her while it pours with rain from the roof inside the taxi, and there is a terrific tangle of objects round about, a sewing machine, all sorts of vegetation, and the snails, who have a great sense of what they ought to do, go fixing themselves on her eyes. When you get inside, a long corridor is lined all down one side with mannequins dressed by different artists. Some are marvellously seductive, but the best is done by Max. Just a widow with her dead husband lying on the floor behind, a lion's head for his face, and the widow, a most full-lipped, ravishing thing, lifts her weeds showing a red light between her legs. But I can't possibly describe them all. Man has done a very good one, with soap bubbles which would please you and masons with a birdcage of her head with fish in it, and a mirror over her twat in which, as it has been pointed out, her man-friend sees himself, makes a good enough piece. One of the best objects you can see in the catalogue, page 15. The shadow of the hand coming out of the gramophone caresses the breasts as they turn round silently. But there's so much there that I come away each time without having seen half. Also, it being arranged as though in a cellar without light makes one feel that there are hidden treasures everywhere, which it would take years to discover. In any case, as a show, it is a roaring success once more. 3,000 people turned up for the opening and only half managed to get in. The papers are full of it. Paul and Noosh, very tired and pale, send you their love, complaining slightly that you have not written. Did you ever get the joint letter we all sent you when I was in Paris two months ago? Man is bereaved of Addy, who left on an ocean of tears for the Guadeloupe. Addy Fidelin, mentioned in Lee and Roland's letters, actually came from Guadeloupe. She arrived in Paris in about 1930 and was really significant as a black jazz dancer. At that time, this was a very unusual and a very bold and new thing to do. She was about 20. She met Man Ray in about 1936 and is well known as being his model and his lover. But what people tend to overlook is that she actually had her own significant career as a model. She was the first black woman to model for Vogue magazine. Man is still uncertain if he is going to follow. Maison was here complaining bitterly of pains and fatigue. He looked none too good and has gone back. This letter is being written at various intervals of the day and night, so don't mind if it's a bit disjointed. Last night I dined with Picasso, Dora, Paul and Noosh. I bought a new picture of Picasso in a moment of enthusiasm, which I really ought not to have done if I had thought first of my overdraft, but still I'm very glad to have it. 
It's a very tragic one, a complete contrast to your portrait. And in even brighter colours. We talked of you. Picasso asked after you a lot and wanted to know when you are coming back. So do I, my darling. That's the one question in the world that interests me now. And so far you have given only rather sketchy replies. I suppose now you are very busy bedding your little queen. The papers, both here and abroad, are full of details about the habit of Egypt's wives and how she'll never see another man apart from her husband from now on. I wonder if you get a firm out, if it only means hateful official ceremonies. I'm off to Montana tomorrow for four days and then back to London. It's possible that Man, Noosh and Paul will come with me. In any case, I rather look forward to some fresh air after galleries, hotels and cafes where it's all stink and overheating. Write to me in London and don't forget the photos you promised me. Come back soon. It's now about four months that you have been gone. It seems an age. I long for you and I love you. Roland. Four months since they last seen each other and they're still going strong. In the next episode, the arrival of Picasso's portrait to Egypt causes Lee to throw a fantastic party attended by a mix of expatriates, friends and some Egyptian surrealist artists that Lee would continue to collaborate with. This episode was narrated by me, Amy Bouhazen, and I also read Lee's letters. Roland's letters were read by Adam Grayson. Our guests today were... Dr. Hussein Omar, a lecturer in modern global history at the University College Dublin, and Anthony Penrose, son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose and co-director and founder of the Lee Miller Archive. The music was composed by David Cullen and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. Copyright of the series is Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved.